Welcome back, everyone, to the podcast. I've taken a short break from doing kind of one-to-one podcasts. We did like four months, of, four months straight every week of a podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to take like a short break. I thought, yeah, I, I wanted to make sure the quality was being upheld. And today, yes. very, very interesting guest. Please introduce yourself. Tell, tell, tell everyone who you are, um, what you Hello. do. Um, I'm Sam. I'm yeah, a young investor in the uh, innovation, in the backbone infrastructure technology and whatever I found interesting. I come a long way, I think, even though I'm investing into individual stocks really for just two years. But mm. yeah, you can imagine how challenging those two years were so far. So I, I'm, I'm pretty confident to say that I gained years of knowledge because you're constantly being challenged by the market. Yeah. And so, yeah, but I'm still here. I'm here to learn. I'm, I'm pretty humble, I think. Uh, and I'm sharing my knowledge and my thinking with all my followers for free. Yeah, it's awesome. I think I've said this so many times, but um, my strategy when I first started investing, which I can't remember how long ago, but it's been a good few years, um, to say the least. And I think I've, I've been lucky investing, and you probably too. I've, I feel very mm-hmm. fortunate investing within this time period. I've experienced the utter euphoria within the electronic car sector. I've seen the euphoria, the bubbles that can occur within crypto, within the electric cars, within tech. I've also yes. seen the other side of the spectrum, just the utter kind of bubble pop. And, and, and I feel very fortunate to be kind of investing within this period because I feel like I've seen a huge array of like different scenarios within a very short period of time. I mean, what's going on in the markets now is crazy. Um, it's interesting and I think history can can tell us a lot. Um, so so from my perspective, and the thing that I wanted to say was for anyone that's interested in investing, I would say learning on the job is your best strategy. Absolutely. Yes. You can read all the books in the world in which I did. You can read and listen to every podcast in the world which I did. You can literally do anything and everything. But the best way to learn something and the way that I feel I've actually got good anything in life is just literally by learning on the job. And for me, at least, I, I didn't start with going in, you know, tens of thousands of, of, of dollars at all. I started very small amounts and then over time built up um, as my yep. kind of confidence increased and as I started to, 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 to learn more about markets. Um, so my advice kind of to anyone, um, even if I should be giving advice, but my, my, my commentary would be just to learn on the job. I think it's incredibly valuable um, and actually very underrated. You, you, you won't uh, appreciate it enough until you really experience it. And you will realize that you can't buy this experience. You have to really go through it. And I said this months ago, and I'm saying it again. uh, Even if you told me months ago what I will go through and that I will lose a lot of money for sure in the market, I will still pick the, the same way. I will still go through all of this just so I can gain this experience that you can't really buy. Just so I will avoid all those mistakes in the future, really. Because... As I, as I go on for the years to come and I expect to stay there for decades, I really want to do this for for, for a really long time. Uh, you, you know, I will manage a lot larger amounts of money. So I really want to make those mistakes early on and then learn and just stick to my winners and really maybe crystallize my investing process understand what I what to look for and where are possibly the the first you know red flags before everything pops and just you know learn along the way and become a better investor tell me about your yeah. your, your approach to investing then um, because this is something that I think is very personal and individualistic and there's so many people that tell you um, to kind of invest like them invest like Buffett invest in indexes etc but I really do think like your approach is very personal it's very much based on your risk appetite is very much based yes. on what you enjoy for me personally I really really enjoy investing within companies firstly I do invest in indexes just for transparency and mm-hmm. I have done for some time I think it's I think it's very valuable um, and I specifically think that that it's probably the best strategy for most people but on the other yes. hand, the spectrum, on, on the other side of the spectrum, I do, I do believe fundamentally that my interest is within taking risk. I have a phenomenal risk appetite, which I've learned to kind of over the past few years, most definitely. Um, I think for me, I love investing within innovation. I love investing within companies, which I believe Absolutely. are fundamental towards the future. And that also is, is, I think it's important to note too, people, when I say that, think, oh, he's just going to try and, you know, he's just like investing within any company. 
regardless of valuation. That is something I really dispute. I really believe that you can gain a, a margin of safety. You can get in at a good valuation uh, and also experience a significant upside if your thesis is correct when you invest within a company maybe like Palantir at five, six dollars. It seems like a, yeah. a fairly reasonable valuation to me, uh, to say the least. So what is your approach to investing? Are you just set on like investing within really speculative companies or do you also take a, a more laid back approach to investing in Google? I, I don't, companies? actually, I, I don't think, yeah, I like to combine your say blue chips with, yeah. I mean, blue chips inside technology, obviously. <laughs> My core of competence, I think is technology and disruptive, yeah. you know, tech and all that stuff. Yeah. So I, I prefer to stay within the circle. For example, I'm not playing crypto basically in any no. way because I'm not too knowledgeable in the space. Basically, my only exposure, let's say, is through through Block, yeah. which I own, and partly through Cloudflare, which also builds some tools, you know, for Web3 and all that infrastructure. So that's very limited exposure I'm fine with. Um, yeah, I like to own, you know, I, I don't think I'm, I'm really investing in speculative assets. I look at those companies. I look at um, whether they are leaders in their space. I mean, I'm really looking, you know, I've come to crystallize my process a long way, really. I went from very uh, concentrated portfolio to very diversified portfolio and, and you know, back and forth. Yeah. Um, and then I kind of realized like, what do I really want to do with my portfolio? So, I mean, I'm investing now in companies primarily that have some form of ecosystem. That's where I'm interested. Uh, backbone infrastructure, for example, and then you have like, you know, infrastructure ecosystems and all that stuff. Uh, I've basically detected a few sectors I'm really interested in that I think will drive the future. So I want to have some form of exposure through companies. The, the, the more exposure, the better. But I mean, like, through multiple sectors at once. That's what I really appreciate, right? I agree. So, so when I'm thinking of companies, even like Microsoft, for example, they give me a lot of exposure across multiple sectors yeah. I'm interested in, right? Many people don't know there's a lot of people on Fintwitch, you know, chasing cybersecurity companies, even, Mark, even the smallest Microsoft ones. is a leader in cybersecurity, right? Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, I used to, actually I was among them, but then I realized like, okay, but why, why am I taking all this risk with this, you know, smaller unicorn, even though their technology is great, but you know, the execution is still a question. Yeah. And then I'm like, okay, I can I can own Microsoft, which is already leading in the market. They have the power to bundle their services up with other ones. And so they have a pricing power too, I believe. And they are also growing their cybersecurity arm like 50, 60% year over year. So why bother with anything else? I can just move my money to Microsoft and call it a day, you know. I agree. Uh, so, Buffett, I was just doing some research on Buffett. Uh, I find him just mm -hmm. like such an interesting mind. And he speaks about the circle of competence to have when you're investing. Yep. So many people just want to invest within like any industry that they don't know anything about. I think that's very dangerous. And if you are going to invest within individualistic companies in comparison to an index, it's probably wise to have like an, an, a, a few industries you're really fascinated by, um, yep. a few interest, industries you're interested in, a few industries you also know well, and therefore you yes. can really kind of garner which companies are leaders, what are the necessities for the space, where is the space going in the future, is the space stagnant, mm -hmm. etc. So I agree completely with, with your philosophy in terms of um, having interest within certain industries and kind of exploiting that in comparison to just investing within Bitcoin and, and the crypto scene, because that in itself is incredibly nuanced and, and complex. Um, so yeah, as you say that I, I, off the top of my head, I can think of a few different industries in which I'm fascinated by and I've done a lot yep. of research in, um, and I would kind of, I, I, I have it really wrote down. Uh, I yep. have this mind map that, that enables me to really think through things. Uh, in yeah. my own way, nuanced, you know, and then I, I really detected a few, a few, um, you know, sectors I'm interested in, like 5G, AI, yeah. AR, VR, you know, yeah. I have cloud computing, digital commerce, advertising education, right? I really, I think digital education is really underrated, if I'm being honest. 
I think it's going to be very important because as things get automated, increasingly so, you will have a large demand for people to re-educate themselves to really still, you know, participate in the job market because you can't really, you know, have knowledge in things that are already replaced by machines. You can't really, you know, find another job that enables you to do the same because it's not needed anymore. So you have to re-educate. So you have to, for example, go to services like Coursera or LinkedIn Learning, for example, or, or stuff like that. And, you know, I think those companies will gain from that. So I want to be exposed to that. Right? I think I think that there's something fascinating that I'm seeing when investing. And this is also why I love investing because it's so, it's like sociological. It intertwines loads of different disciplines into one. I find it so interesting. And one thing I've noticed is within certain industries, there's been kind of a, a convergence point between digital and physical. And what yes, I mean by that is- They are like, converging for, a lot. Yeah, for example, with, electric, with, with cars, um, electric mm-hmm. cars specifically, previously that was very physical in terms of just creating a, a, a tangible manufactured good, right? But Elon has recently kind of led the sphere when it comes to intertwining digital and physical together for electric yeah. cars. For example, now many car companies are, are speculated to be valued at um, at software company type valuations in comparison to yes. just sold, selling a tangible good. And when you when you speak about education, that comes to mind too. It's one of the most archaic industries to date. It hasn't changed for hundreds mm-hmm. and hundreds of years. It's a very similar kind of strategy, uh, one school to the other. Very, very, yeah. um, in my opinion, awaiting disruption, I would say. You can also think of, uh, I've spoke to a friend recently about this, and I, I'm a huge optimist, right? Um, and many of my friends perhaps think I'm, crazy sometimes, but I, I said to my friend, you know, why are we not 3D printing houses or something? Why are we not uh, changing the way we create houses? Houses take months and months to make, if not years. Why are we not disrupting the housing market via new technologies, for example, 3D printing or something? I think you're onto something. I was really thinking a few times about 3D printing as a whole, because it was hyped up a few times already, you know, in the last decade. And it still seems like the technology is just not there yet, mm. you know, because sometimes you have to, you know, have this convergence of a few technologies to really enable something. It, mm. it was apparent with smartphone, for example, or some other stuff too. So I don't know, it's maybe still awaiting, but it's just like always people hype it up and it turns out, even if you look at companies like 3D systems or stuff like that, you see that the growth is still not there for some reason. I'm not, yeah. I'm not too, you know, I didn't really go too deep to, to judge, but just looking at the numbers of the, you know, leading 3D companies, I'm not seeing that growth. Hmm. I totally acknowledge that. Before we get onto some more points that I wanted to, to speak about, tell me quickly about uh, blue chip companies and these big tech companies like Google, Microsoft, etc. And Meta, Meta, I, I read a report yesterday, I did a, a video on this too. Yep. about kind of the, the downside of meta and um i think often and i've done this in the past too many people can invest within these big companies like meta facebook um microsoft google etc and they can yes. deem them as kind of a safe haven or just a cash hedge no that is very dangerous and, and my point being is do you think there's a possibility in which in the future investors are kind of investing within these 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 so-called safe companies like Microsoft, however, actually, these more innovative new startups outpace uh, the, the, the expected return in comparison to just investing within one of these safe companies. Is that a thing you see? And what are the, the dangers in just investing within uh, really depends. Microsoft, et cetera? I think it really depends. Uh, if you look at Microsoft, they are literally a conglomerate at this point. Mm. There's a very few things I can imagine disrupting them, although it's still a possibility. That's why you invest and verify right along yeah. the way you, you don't invest like I, I really hate this um you know this approach that many people on fint with like uh going the way like i'll in, i'll i'll own this forever no you don't you should yeah. sell it if if the thesis changes or there's yeah. a disruptor otherwise you would still hold onto your ibm or cisco <laughs> even though the the thesis is no longer there i mean like look at cisco they are stagnating they are not even having this pricing power to increase the prices into uh you know at, at at the pace of inflation so they are beating you know being eaten 
basically. I look at this, like all the companies this way, like you should be at least increasing your sales at the uh, pace of inflation. Otherwise you are losing mm -hmm. your pricing, you know, against it. Well, Whether I'll that's a software company or whatever. One thing uh, I'll notice at me, which was very interesting, and it got me thinking to say the least. He, he said that um, that a hedge against, I can't remember the, correct, the, the exact terminology, he said, a hedge against inflation is uh, investing within innovative, misunderstood companies. I think that was his current yeah. terminology. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but um, I think there's some, some value to that, right? You could, uh, as you say, there is a danger and a possibility that Meta, for example, um, that, that Facebook kind of stagnates in terms of view, in, in terms of uh, daily users. Uh, there's not much utility. TikTok eats away from a competitive point of view. Which, I'll tell you what I don't way, like about uh, Facebook. Go ahead. There, there's, oh. I see Google, Microsoft, and Apple as the best big tech. That's that's just my philosophy. I look at their their structure, and really, when you think about what they have in common, is that they own the platform, own the foundation. Yeah. They have, one has iOS, the other one has Android, and the, the third one has Windows. Mm. What does Facebook have? Yeah. They are now trying to push this Oculus because they don't own the platform. And you see what Apple did to them yeah. with this IDFA, you know, thing. So I want them to own the foundation. Otherwise, you know, I'll be concerned that Google may come up with something next and it's going to be way more, you know, unpleasant. Well, just look, because... at, look at TikTok. Have you, yeah. seen, have you used TikTok before? I, I literally created TikTok for um, for the channel like a few hours ago, and some of the videos have already got hundreds and hundreds of views. I barely have done anything. Like the virality there is immense, and from my perspective as a young younger person, I don't want to use TikTok in which I don't want to use Facebook in which I feel is filled with you know older people. Um, yes. There's no attraction there. I mean, apart from kind of from a business perspective, from a personal point of view, it's a very boring, archaic platform. I actually don't use any new. of their products anymore. No, I don't. I don't think I do either. Um, I, I've used the the VR goggles. I think they're very interesting, and there's perhaps a, a thesis there. Um, but my my main point, going back to what I was saying earlier, is with companies like like Meta, they are investing heavily now within the metaverse, in which they expect profits in in twenty thirty. As a, as I don't a minimum. think it's going to play out. Exactly, and and the danger is that what if Facebook does stagnate? What if they come under worse press? What if um what if that TikTok and et cetera eats away at Facebook's market share and user base. That's, That's a big danger, a, a, a big danger. So I would, my, my main point being is I definitely wouldn't deem any of these big tech companies, big tech companies as, as safe havens. Um, I think that's a, probably a, a major misunderstanding. If I were to play uh, a success of Facebook's metaverse, and yeah. because it's ultimately enabled by Oculus, right? So. If you want to play Oculus success and don't want to own Facebook, then just own Qualcomm, for example, because they are mm. the, the supplier of chips to Oculus, right? So if the sales go through the roof, they will surely, you know, capitalize on that. So it's a great exposure to, to the success of uh, Meta without being exposed to their failure of success. And the, the second thing I wanted to say, I don't think the idea of metaverse uh, in case of meta will succeed. And that's just my opinion, right? Yeah. Uh, and that is because of their culture. This whole idea of metaverse is, you know, having the shared spaces, you know, among multiple companies, projects, it's like a common protocol, right? For, for everything. And you can already see the, you know, the greed of Meta here. You, you see, they launched NFT marketplace, for example, with fifty percent fees. I mean, like, is this realistic, really? Who's going to list their NFTs there if they take fifty percent out of the sales? I mean, so they are really greedy, and their culture, I think, won't allow them to really succeed to the idea that is going to ultimately succeed. If I were to bet on Metaverse, I really like to, even though I'm now I'm not so sure after what happened today with Unity, but that's like the other way I like to bet on the Metaverse because this whole, you know, content creation thing is going to be a part of that. And they are the enablers of that technology and the, the content creation. So they will benefit. And then you have even blue chip players like Adobe, for example, with their experience cloud. And you know, they are in the center of that. So I like to play, you know, this idea of 
content creation and metaverse through those players. I just, I don't think I understand what Mark's vision is. He's, it seems to be he wants to intertwine v, like VR and, and, and the, the way we are living now in some way, in a more like fluid way, which I think I, I, I can conceptualize, but I don't know if I see it as a reality. Is, is Mark's metaverse, in your opinion, kind of a, uh, a future in which we're wearing some sort of goggle? Is that a possibility? Mm. Is that what Mark sees? No, he spoke about recently with Jim Cramer, the fact that he expects people to be buying goods for their person in the metaverse and spending hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars. I mean, that's it. already happening yeah. in, with some games. So that's not really unrealistic, I think. But, but I'm well, my, way more bullish on AR than VR, to be fair. I okay. think VR is a thing that you will use at home, for example, but AR is very much more interesting because it has cases in real world, right? When you're like constructing something or, you know, just playing games with friends, for example, you can have like virtual ball with which you play and stuff like that. So it has way more interesting use cases for me, I think. Um, and the VR will be just like, okay, I'm at home and I want to play some VR games. So let me play it. Uh, I don't still, I, I think there's going to be other iterations of this idea that's going to prevail versus uh, meta. And one thing I think that meta investors discount really uh, is that like, I, I noticed that you should be really wary of, for example, when uh, a company makes a very fundamentally shifting acquisition, yes. for example, right? Like it really changes the, um, you know, the, the fundamentals of the of the current you know company and so you should be i think as much as very when the business in this case meta is trying to shift itself to something completely else the you know un, <laughs> we haven't discovered these waters yet so we you're really really going into this uncertainty and i think uh when much of the fintwit says that uh, meta is really uh, undervalued then I, I have a wrong feeling that there's more to go. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a fair thing to say. I'm totally honest and I agree with the, with the points you made. Tell me about YouTube drama. Um, I don't know you, you and Arnaldo recently kind of uh, did a video um, talking about FTX and Emmanuel too. Um, tell me about FTX. What is, the, what is going on in this space? And this has been something that I've thought about in great depth too recently. Um, because I think that the incentive structures online are catered towards pumping unprofitable, exciting, innovative new stocks in which are likely to fail. Um, I think that's where the incentive structures are aligning. And for mm -hmm. me, for example, when I make a video on why I don't like Bitcoin or a bit like valid criticisms over a certain company, I get so much hate. Uh, often the video doesn't do as well. People are, are just really, really angry. Um, but it seems when I pump kind of, uh, or, or make a video on, on, on Palantir, for example, not pump, when I make a video on Palantir, um, everyone loves it. And it's like, I don't know if I would just want to make videos on Palantir 24-7, all day, every day. It seems a bit, uh, it goes against my morals, I think is, is the correct terminology. So tell me about YouTube drama um, and YouTube finance in general. What do you think of this space? Is it actually educational? And is there any value to be kind of gained? There's a few creators that I think are educational. And then there's a lot of educators, uh, or should I say uh, creators that really do this for entertainment purposes, mm -hmm. right? Okay. So, and I think I was really thinking about this today and I was like, I think it's fair to say really to the audience. I mean, the, the person that is watching those videos should be wary of the fact that, yeah, the, the person may have some financial incentives that push him into this narrative, whether it's shorter or, or, you know, person that goes long and the second you should tell your audience, like, you shouldn't just blindly follow me. Yeah. You should know that if you blindly follow me, you, you, I mean, you, you can succeed in the same way I do, but then you will also make the same mistakes I do. So you yeah. should keep that in mind. Uh, when it comes to YouTube drama and all this thing with FTX, I think it just comes down to common sense. You look yeah. at what they are doing and you... I mean, if you have two brain cells, you should know that this is not a sustainable business. Yeah. If you, if you sponsor 
you know, these huge stadiums, YouTubers, you pay them like tens of thousands of dollars a month to, you know, and you pay like 100 or 200 of those people, you know, you pay for, I don't know, you sponsor, you know, big festivals and all that stuff, politicians even uh, from the reports we've read. Um, it doesn't make sense. And even more so like, uh, yeah, if you, if you really think about it, even though, even they spent like a few billion dollars on a Robin Hood stake too. So where does that money come from? Really? You can't even look after, you know, um, SBFs, you know, net worth because that is probably artificially pumped up by the recent uh, valuation of the FTX of the last round in January. You know, and that was like 32 billion. So yeah, you may you may argue that current figure of SBF's, you know, net worth says that he's worth 20 billion, but that is probably made of this pumped up number of 32 billion that was, you know, where they uh, last uh, raised money. So like, there's a lot of uh, lack of clarity in this case. But then there's more shady stuff like this uh, This clip that, that was in uh, CoffeeZilla's video about how how he's basically describing a Ponzi scheme. And then I've even read some SEC comments. I'm not really sure what that was, but uh, some guy was alleging of, uh, alleging of uh, SBF uh, basically being involved in some shitcoin, you know, scheme, scamming people. And then they basically went after the guy and uh, pressured him in, into settling for one Bitcoin. Mm. And even then, uh, FTX was really um, pushing on the guy to really handle all the PR themselves so it won't damage the brand. So there's kind of a lot of shadiness, uh, I think, in this case. And I think it's going to all collapse when the hype dries up and when there's uh, less and less people, you know, new money signing up into the platform. Yeah, I, I mean, when you, when, when, you, when you think about it, they're um, spending, as a minimum, 50K on YouTube uh, channels, probably upwards of 100, maybe 200,000 a month um, at the higher end on some bigger channels per month. Uh, mm -hmm. Furthermore, they're, they're giving away free money for signups, and they have a dodgy kind of headquarters in the Bahamas, I believe. Like, yeah, me too. It's three years old only. Oh, wait. Yeah. yeah, and it seems that they're, they acquire. Do you know what companies they've acquired? Are they acquiring kind of collapsed crypto companies? And if so, what is the expected return meant to be on those investments? It seems like very. There seems to be like and many of those they were me. actually like owing to. You know the money. Really. In, in case of Voyager, I think they own them like 370 million or something like that. So you're buying a company that you actually owe to. I, I mean, that's weird to me. Yeah. And even I mean, then, I mean, if, you, if you look at those companies, they, they have not really had any business model. I mean, otherwise, how do you make really money on a 8 or 10% yield? On well, that's the thing. That's the thing I was going to ask. Whatever. When when you look at Celsius, for example, how are they making eight to ten percent on yield? They must have just been trading bitcoins because how do you generate yield on on something that does nothing? No, right? just imagine you give me ten percent on my money. So how much of a fee do you have to take from the other person to to just make profit for yourself and then give me a part of those profits to lend to people with twenty percent or thirty percent interest? Really, who's taking that? Why would you mm -hmm. do that? Yeah. No, you can just just go to regular bank and then borrow your money. I mean, it's safer. So why would you borrow from anyone for a 20 or 30% interest? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'm for one have been very kind of critical of the whole space. And specifically when it comes to kind of crypto, I'm very optimistic on the philosophy. And the philosophy basically says yep. that we're going to enable microtransactions at a rate we've never seen before. Um, to enable those from financially excluded areas to, to, to come into the ecosystem. Um, we're, we're going to enable some sort of distribution, which is uh, secure of the network. Um, and, and just a range of other benefits, which actually are useful. But I believe personally that uh, unfortunately this hype, the crypto scene in general, 99% of it is a total fad. 99% yep. of it, people have just 
brought in early, they've brought tokens early, they've pumped it up with celebrities, they've pumped it up with influencers, and they've increased the value of those tokens. So I've people seen have a lot of have that. gained massive. I've seen like, porn stars pumping some shit coins on Instagram. Literally. Wow. It was just floating around on Twitter, really. I just look it, looked it up like, is it real? And it was. Yeah. And then, then you know, you know what what followed? They just dumped it, and people lost money, like millions of dollars. I think yeah. that's like it's just ridiculous to me that no one is held accountable for those scams, even those who promote it. It's unfair. So tell me about the, so, so we spoke about YouTube quickly, um, and mm -hmm. you mentioned a point in terms of you know the viewers having common sense. But my counter argument would be if you have a channel with. 700,000 subscribers, if you have a channel with 2 million subscribers, I feel that as a viewer, you're instantaneously just going to think, oh yes, they have validity because they have a lot of subscribers. Therefore, I will trust them. That's a very especially, especially the passive, especially the passive um, individuals who perhaps aren't as equipped to think, to think when it comes to markets, they aren't very experienced within investing. They, I believe, would just trust someone like me, Kevin, um, or some of these other big channels because they solely have a, a, a big in, a big subscriber base. That is the issue I see. Um, do you agree? And I think you're going to, to say some comments. Yeah, I agree. I think it's very dangerous. Um, I mean, if I were a creator in that case, if I had like hundreds of thousands of subscribers, I would feel very pressured to, you know, defend my integrity. And quite frankly, I would still like just work with brands or products that I can get behind, really. So mm. even if I go down with them, I can still say that I was like, okay with them. I really believed in them, you know, but there's a lot of people that really take anything because they see those flashy prices, they will pay them, you know? And I think that's wrong. But even me, like I was offered a few, you know, collaborations, but still I, I only took common stock, for example. Like I, I, I suggested you yesterday because I can get behind them. I make a content there and um, I really like the idea of, uh, you know, verifying your track record publicly um, mm. in front of people. I'm all yep. for that. I have my portfolio public. Anyone can, can uh, look and it's being updated. I think every day uh, it shows you the trades, just not in a nominal uh, amounts, but in a percentage uh, amounts, you know, you see how much of my portfolio is in that or that. And you can even see like, if I did a transaction, how much of that was added to my position. So if I increase my position by, you know, 30% or whatever, you can all see that at what price. Or if I close the position, you can see at uh, how big of a loss or gain I made that. So everybody can check that. Can you um, read through, I, I believe, if I, I'm going to get it, get it on the screen now, uh, some of your picks when it comes to investing. Let me just get it up here. But let me look at your portfolio because I think it's very, very interesting. Um, tell me your philosophy on, um, where is it? Are you invested in, in Snow? Yes, you are. Tell me, tell me your philosophy it, it, about Snowflake because I think this is a fascinating company, but I investing in Palantir, I, I don't know if, I don't know. I don't know if I see a viable philosophy for Snowflake longer term. I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts and you perhaps could, could give an overview of what you think about, about the company. I was just, when I was researching that, it's more of a more recent buy, actually. Yeah. I bought it just a couple of months ago. Uh, but really, I was very interested in the way that Frank Slutman leads the company. He has a very valid track record with uh, ServiceNow for, for years that he led. And the company is very, it's, it's one of the best SaaS companies, hands down. And even now when, uh, you know, Bill took it after him, it, it, they are doing really well. Uh, with Snowflake, I think um, it has something that Palantir doesn't have. They can sell uh, the product way better than Palantir. Yeah. Uh, even if it's not technically as capable of, uh, as Palantir's product, they can sell the company, the actual vision of what this product is going to do and uh, how big of a ROI they can expect from the investment. So, and I really like about the company that they are actually running a usage-based model. So the more you use it, the more you pay. And so that's why they have this incredible net retention rate of 
like 173 percent yeah. or whatever it's, crazy. it's just insane so even when people say it's very overvalued i mean i wasn't a buyer at 300s or whatever but i initiated my position at around 110 to 125 yeah. or something like that so i'm up actually now as you can see um yeah i'm very interested in in snowflake because it's very much loved between developers uh that's something just you, that you can discover through forums and stuff like that through actual people that work in the industry um and they have a very broad based you know data tools now even entering stuff like cybersecurity and stuff like that so i see it as a very valid data play along with uh, mongodb and palantir in my case i think it's a, a very cool company and as you said Pounder definitely does have an issue with selling the product, undoubtedly. That is where Snowflake really does prevail. Um, and I think Pounder can definitely take a, a, a leaf from Snowflake's book there because Snowflake, the way they've kind of modularized the product, is in the, it's a more individualistic offering. It's thinner. It's less invasive, but they sell it really well. You have to give them yeah. that. Um, and I think, in my personal view, I, I don't think it's fair to say that Pounder and Snowflake directly compete. However, they do compete for the same dollar. And what I mean by that, and I think mm -hmm. many people misunderstand this, yeah. many people misunderstand this is, is the fact that within IT, within companies in general, often it's very hard to tell which software works and which software doesn't. Um, and when you have kind of a range of different potential solutions, it can be very hard to convey the value of using Palantir over Snowflake. So the fact that Snowflake can sell their product uh, much better, they can market their product much better. They're not viewed as kind of a spy company. Uh, they actually clearly convey what they do. This is incredibly value, valuable when it comes to um, Snowflake's long-term competitive I can tell you one thing that I also it. like about Snowflake. They have Go this ahead. platform that enables you, like if you have, for example, two companies having their data stored at you know any lake or database at Snowflake, they can use uh, their tools at Snowflake to really share that data in real time and work with it. I think that's very valuable like having this ability to really work through data and stuff like that. You know? can, can I ask, um, can I ask a, a question that I've asked a few guests before? Do you have, when you, as an investor, because Snowflake and Palantir are fairly technical companies, right? How nuanced do you have to be when it comes to understanding? Do you have to be technical in some way in order to successfully invest in Palantir? Or can you just get kind of a generalized overview of the company? And, and have a success. I don't think I'm too deep too. with Palantir. I actually just, I have a general understanding of, of what the company does and why their platform is superior to say other alternatives, because it's a full range of tools and it's very complete platform. It's a yeah. very great operating system for all data-driven actions, right? Uh, actually, a lot of stuff that I look for is just inside the numbers, really look at the deployment of commercial, which is the main case for Palantir, let's be honest. Um, you have a great mode with the government contracts because that's a very stable funding, right? You have a pretty good net retention rate. Um, and even when you're looking at the, at the customers they serve, if you're helping the US government or you're helping, say, Airbus, for example, to reduce their, their um, you know, waiting periods and stuff like that. It, it speaks volumes to me. So I even look at those customer stories and cases, and that is very valuable to me. So if I really see that the product is really valuable and brings in a lot of uh, great ROI fast, which is where the main focus currently is as, uh, you know, the, the ServiceNow CEO just mentioned, I think yesterday, that yeah. the focus on enterprise right now uh, is like the, the companies prioritize uh, products that they adopt, that they can bring in, you know, high and fast ROI. That's, that's where the money is going currently. So if I think of that, I already think of Snowflake, I can think of Palantir and I can think of stuff like that, ServiceNow too and Salesforce and all that stuff. SaaS is very important right now. It's a indistinguishable part of the company because you, you can't really be competitive without data-driven actions and all that uh, solutions. 
So you can't even stop the funding for those solutions because you really depend on them. So I think that's the most confident thing I'm currently being invested in. It's the data. Because data is is essential everywhere, mm. whether that's on the edge or in cloud or whatever. It's just all yeah. data driven. I think in the future, you'll, you'll be able to kind of conceptually see which companies utilize data best and which don't. And it's clear to me that companies in which do have a huge competitive edge in terms of costs being saved in terms yes, of insights, predictions, prevention, simulations, etc. Um, yeah, uh, it, it's a very exciting industry to invest in. And um, it, does, it definitely gets me optimistic for the future, to say the least, because when you look at Palantir's use cases, when it comes to you know climate change, when you look at Palantir's use cases, mm -hmm. when it comes to um, Edge AI, Sky Compute, all of these interesting, fascinating use cases, it makes me extremely optimistic for the future. Um, and specifically, they're like unconventional approach to business in which is protection of the West. They're not working with China, not working with Russia, and time has shown that yeah, actually that really was like an that. unbelievably good decision. Um, so for me, Palantir, I think, is, is a fascinating company. But just for everyone watching, it comes with huge risks. Absolutely. I mean, stock-based compensation, to say the least, is a major risk for the company. Main but if it, continues, it's, if it continues significantly, it could be a reason as to why I significantly decrease my position in Palantir. Um, and I think just That's as fair. a heads up, people should most definitely take that into consideration. So saying that we are entering into a normalization period in which is uh, going to eventually become um, similar to other software companies such as Snowflake. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, tell me about AMD. I'm fascinated by AMD. AMD, I believe, is, is, is located in Taiwan, right? If I, if I remember correctly. No, it's actually in the US. They just uh, outsource you know, chip manufacturing from Taiwan. It's okay, important so to understand that AMD is a chip designer. They are not a manufacturer, okay. actually. So, so tell me about the relationship to Taiwan quickly. Um, so yeah, they are just dependent on the TSMC, which is basically a supplier of like 60% of the world's supply. Then yeah. you have Samsung with like 15% of the market share. And there's then probably, you know, global foundries and Intel and all, all those smaller manufacturers. But really, if, you know, I'm, I'm telling that to all people, they are like, okay, aren't you like scared of the possibility of China invading yeah. Taiwan? Yeah, I'm, I'm scared, obviously. But then if if uh, China invades Taiwan, you realize that you sh you don't want to be invested in any stocks then. Because well, even, even Tesla, our, right? Yeah. I mean, your, our economy worldwide is dependent on chips. And if you are getting like 60% of the supplies now going offline overnight, you will see a very nasty market. To yeah, say that's so true. That's something I definitely overlooked. It, the chips are so fundamental towards everything that we do ever. I can't think of many companies off the top of my head, apart from maybe tobacco or something kind of uh, very safe in which would do well within a within the Chinese invasion. Uh, what do you think in terms of the possibilities? Though, have you like spent much time thinking about the possibilities of, a, of an invasion? I mean, we saw the Russian Ukraine. I watch China crisis. very closely. I, I watch a lot of uh, stuff that's going on out there. Uh, what are you I mean, What are you learning? Uh, it's. Uh... It's disgusting how they are, for example, training uh, in their, uh, you know, savannas on the replicas of U.S. boats. And they are like training, attacking them and stuff like that. So that's very uncomforting, you know, uh, when, when you see that. But I don't know. I feel like U.S. would have to step in even if they didn't want to. Because if you, like I said, you can't really work without chips. Your yeah. whole economy would crash. Overnight. So, so what does your your country really have to like lose? You would see a big conflict. It would be literally a world war because uh, Japan already said that if uh, Taiwan was attacked, they would see that as a national security issue. So that allows them to deploy their, you know, quasi uh, army because they are not allowed to, you know, fundamentally have army. Yeah. But they have those, you know, security forces or whatever they call them. So Japan would join. Then you probably would have Australia also joining the battle. I'm expecting that. India, I think, would join as well. And you would basically essentially have a world war at that point. What are we doing to mitigate the risk of... If 60% if of the, the chips come from Taiwan, right? What are we doing to mitigate that? Are we doing anything? Well, Intel does. 
but that's not enough, I think. I think, I mean, Intel announced that they are working on building fabs in Poland, in Italy, in, you know, across Europe, even in Ireland and stuff like that. But I think that's not enough, mainly because Intel is not really the most advanced chip maker. I mean, AMD and NVIDIA is better because TSMC is like the top notch of the, uh, of the whole manufacturing in the world. Everybody who has the top-notch technology manufactures through TSMC. But if you look at their client list, they have AMD, NVIDIA, Apple, you know, Qualcomm, everybody uses TSMC. So, um, I mean, it would be terrible if they invade it, but yeah. like, then you have companies like Palantir, for example, helping on that issue as they presented with like one of their most popular cases where they shown how they are mitigating, you know, the blockades of the boats around yeah. Taiwan. Um, yeah, I mean, it's very, it's bad that we are so concentrated around one small island. I mean, you, you, what, what else do you have? Uh, US manufacturing is, I mean, it's small versus Taiwan. Europe is even, you know, even more behind when it comes to technology. The only valuable thing we have in Europe is ASML. Mm -hmm. We are the basically the monopoly when it comes to the the machinery market when it comes to like manufacturing chips. So they, they make these huge machines that cost hundreds of millions of dollars that they are then shipped through boats or or you know stuff like it, it's huge, and those are used by companies like TSMC that then use those to manufacture the chips. But really, you, you, you can forget about for Europe, you can forget about US basically, and who else? You have Japan and you have South Korea. Yep. That's basically the, the only thing lasting that is relatively you know comparable to the capabilities of TSMC. But that's, to... very, that's very small amount of capacity compared to TSMC alone. When it comes to, you I think you touched on it briefly, when it comes to AMD's competitors, why are you not interested in other competitors? What, what makes AMD stand out so much is, is the question I'm asking. Well, I am invested in Nvidia as well. Okay. Uh, so what AMD has, it's, it's uh, hardly describable to a person that only looks at AMD on the surface level, but they have Lisa Soup. The woman is a genius. Yeah. Um, as, as soon as she became a CEO in the AMD, if you look at all those charts they have, she basically turned around the company. She entered the company. She said, okay, we have to determine what we are interested in and what we do the best. And that's what our prime target is going to be for the next five years. So mm -hmm. they really uh, concentrated their product portfolio into a few you know, spaces that they are really good in and started really competing against Intel and they are taking market share to this day. They are stealing from them. Uh, basically every new data center from companies like Google or Twitter or whatever is built on AMD chips or then Nvidia chips, right? So AMD is leading when it comes to technology versus Intel, for example, which is I think being disrupted and is becoming the IBM of the world uh, of chips. Can I ask, you mentioned founders there, and Warren Buffett, as I was reading him today, he, he says one of his main pillars for an investment is to understand whether management is competent and honest. That was his kind of terminology. Mm -hmm. What makes a good founder? What makes a good founding team? Why is AMD CEO so, so spectacular? Um, and what are kind of the traits that you uh, look for, if any? She comes from the industry. Uh, she's an engineer. So mm -hmm. she has a knowledge, uh, she has the experience, and she is mission-driven. That's very important. You you have to have your founders and management team really mission driven and looking forward to deliver for the company. I would make a case that it's great if you if they have a skin in the game, though yep. that's not really the case with AMD. Okay. But still I, I've I've seen the track record of Lisa. Um even before I started investing, I was pretty sure that AMD is going to succeed. Because as a gamer, uh, I saw how uh, Ryzen's were becoming more and more competitive with every generation. And I literally told my dad, 
he, he asked me like, what do we in invest in? And I told him like, go in AMD. Cause I knew they are going to like win market share from Intel because they are becoming better. And they did, even though I didn't understand a single bit of balance sheet or whatever today from financial perspective, I told him like invest in AMD. And that was like when the AMD was trading at like $28 or whatever. Now we are at like 80 and we were at 160 at one point. Well, I know so, someone, one of my, one of my great friends has been on the podcast a few times. He's, he invested in AMD, uh, mm -hmm. at inception, basically the stock dropped, I think 78% in value. And he went actually and kind of forgot about the investment. He built a startup, um, and, and then 10 years later or something crazy, uh, his, I think it 2,300 X or something absurd. Um, so just to give us kind of some perspective, I know that's uh, obviously I'm not I'm not trying to make anyone kind of speculate on on a stock, but it's it's true uh, that, that AMD has really been a wonder story, and uh, perhaps I mean AMD would be a, ba a bad investment before Lisa kicked in, and I would say the same I think uh, about Microsoft before Satya Nadella entered the company because mm -hmm. the dude is a literally gold, he's a genius, really he's uh, mission driven. Uh, he's delivering, he knows how to manage the company and look at his results. Uh, look at the Azure, look at the Power BI and all those product lines that are really succeeding. Even if you look at Teams, they are really successful bundling them with uh, Microsoft 365, for example, and they are really selling a lot. They are it's a so, tough competitor to Zoom. It's so interesting when you think about like Teams v Zoom, right? Why use Zoom over Teams? Why use Team over Zooms? And it seems yeah, like I thought the same. Many, many, many institutions now seem to be using, at least from my experience, Teams over Zoom. It's so oh, weird. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Uh, look, why would you? I asked myself when I, uh, at the time when I owned the Zoom and I was thinking of like consolidating my positions into fewer ones. And I was like, okay, so if the IT budgets are tightening, which is a fact, right? Yeah. Uh, especially as now the micro, you know, the macroeconomics tightens. Yeah. So they will look for ways to cut their spending. And so why would you spend on Zoom uh, when you can use, you know, Microsoft Teams, you already paid for through Microsoft 365, 365 that you already pay for, for sure. And you can't cut it. Because yep. you use Office, you use Windows and all that stuff, right? You use cybersecurity, God, even that is included in the package too. So, I mean, it's an incredible value proposition. Microsoft even mentioned, and I have to, I have to look this up because I don't sure. want to mess it. Sure. They literally touched on that point and they disclosed how much the, their customers can uh, save by just using the the Microsoft bundle versus like using single solutions for everything. So you're saying um, that Microsoft literally has such a big ecosystem that it makes sense for organizations to use Teams instead of Zoom because yeah. they're in the ecosystem already. Yeah, they said our comprehensive approach reduces complexity and costs. Microsoft 365 customers can save as much as 60% compared to a patchwork of single point identity, productivity, collaboration, and meeting solutions. 60% mm. is insane. That's just absolutely out of stratosphere. So, I mean, like it's hard to compete with them, right? And they're really improving with teams. You even have now Google, for example, bundling uh, Google Meet premium features with uh, Google One subscription. So it's hard to underestimate the capabilities of big companies bundling services up into an incredible value, right? It's hard to compete with them. I think Zoom is going to be fine. They will retain some market share, um, but still like, why do I care about investing in Zoom? when I can just, you know, keep on going with Google and Microsoft. That's the exactly. case I'm making. Why, why, why take that individualistic risk with Zoom when the yes. upside isn't really that high if you think about the competitive landscape too? It seems like there's so many outstanding debates when it yes. comes to Zoom. And Kathy Boyd recently, she thinks Zoom is going to like 10x or something ridiculous. I can't remember her exact uh, figure in I terms don't of price. But I, I mean, it just seems, to, I think she's a very clever lady, but I think something fundamentally within the culture has gone incredibly wrong when you're saying that Zoom is going to be, you know, the mess, next best stock to own. I think they, I just can't they, see they, the thesis. 
they are really um, basically implying that Zoom is going to own basically the whole market, which is not even the case today. And I don't think it's going to meaningfully change in the future, uh, especially as big tech really bundles up all those solutions. And at the end of the day, it's still only a service. Uh, you, you just need to call, right? So like, do you care if it's through Teams or, or if it's through Zoom? I mean, like, but if you like stream it comes app. down to UI and they basically, uh, they, they mentioned that a few times, but I think Microsoft is doing a great job with Teams too. So like, what's the mode? Even like um, StreamYard, which we're using now, the, I feel it's so much better. It's so much easier to use. The recording quality is 10 times higher. It's such a good platform. It's like 20 bucks a month or something, 20, 23 pound a month or something. It's really inexpensive and it does the job. Um, and I think similarly, and we're going to get to Tesla momentarily because I think my, my next point links in with Tesla and the car sector. Um, there's so much competition within this area. And similarly with Tesla, right? When it comes to Tesla, when it comes to any EV, I've been very critical vocally it, with, with investors who are um, investing within Rivian, investing within Neo, investing within, within XPeng and some of these car companies. So I keep saying, I believe these are just car companies. If you look back in history, yes. you can see that car companies historically has been a very bad investment. The majority of them, them have gone bankrupt and that's because they're just a car company. They're selling a tangible good. I think the difference oh. with Tesla is that they have in-house uh, automation in which they're looking to outsource to other manufacturers. They're looking to create foundation models in which is AI that can be applied to any industry domain or task. Neo, yes. Xpeng, unfortunately, they're not doing this. They're either partnering with other companies or they're just selling the car. Can I get your thoughts on Tesla uh, in the last four minutes? Um, why Tesla you owns the whole supply chain. They okay. don't com they don't compare with others because, like, if you look at even at the traditional automakers currently, they don't really make as much stuff as the public thinks. They maybe make some motors and stuff like that, engines, you know, but it's not really the whole thing. Many of those things that they really assembly uh, is just it's just outsourced to all sorts of companies. You look at Tesla, they really optimize their process and everything as nobody else did. And I don't think they can catch up because it's a very unique approach and it takes years to do so. So even if you try, it takes a lot of resources. You have to have the talent that is very uh, limited. And it, it, so far, it's it looks like Tesla has most of the great talent uh, because if you are really... I mean, I watched some of those interviews with, uh, with employees that work there and they yeah. said like, if you're really mission-driven, which Tesla for sure is, uh, if you're a mission-driven employee and you want to accomplish something, you go to Tesla because they, even though you work a lot, and so many hours, it's not really easy. You shouldn't probably go there if you have a family or something like that. Uh, but if you're solely focused on your mission, they will pay you really well. And so, so basically everybody who works at Tesla is basically after a few months, a millionaire, mm -hmm. but, um, because you have all the, I mean, stock-based compensation yeah. and you have options to, I think, purchase the stock, uh, even cheaper than on the open market too, from what I heard, I think, not sure about that, but I, I think I heard that. Um, so yeah, the, you will be paid really well and you can just focus on your thing. So I, I don't think Legacy Auto has this mindset you know, on, in the workplace. There's people who want to do the job and go home. You know, it's, it's not the same thing. The culture is very important. Uh, yeah. I, I can't stress this enough. I think culture is alpha omega of many companies. And that's what's ultimately, uh, in many cases, um, the thing that, you know, distinguishes companies from success and failure. Yeah. It's the culture. I agree. So let me, let me just say something there before, because I have to wrap up in the next five minutes. Let me say something, because I, I think this is a really important point. Um, it's a shame we can't fit it in, but I read a book called Loon Shots, and it's probably one of the best book, books I've, I've read. I really recommend it. And it speaks mm -hmm. about the structure and the culture of the company. And this is where, when it comes to the YouTube finance drama, in which we're seeing recently, many of the guys in which are kind of um, throwing criticism, they're very focused on the numbers, which I totally agree. If you're a value investor, I totally agree. I think it's a very sensible approach. However, when you just focus on the numbers, I think you can perhaps be too reductionistic in terms of your thinking and you can forget about 
these more subjective features, such as culture and structure. Now, innately, that brings more risk, right? It's harder to compute. So I'm not bashing these guys at all, but I'm just saying that perhaps there's room for more open-minded conversations when it comes to structure and culture for an organization. Because at the end of the day, the reason one company often wins over another is based on human organization. How do you create a structure? How do you create a culture in which is going to enable these humans to organize themselves in ways in which is going to create outstanding results? That is the they will line. want you to succeed your company. Say yeah, again. absolutely. Uh, they, they will want you to succeed. If they are if they are feeling great in the company, they will produce you know outstanding results versus mm -hmm. a mediocre culture company. Yeah. I mean, you can use, for example, Glassdoor in many cases as the as the proxy for that. So if you see high you know high uh, ratings. On the glass door from from employees you read through some of those reviews and you see that the employees are really happy in the place then most of those companies are probably about to outperform the market over time if i mean some examples nvidia for example is like having very 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 high results from the employees or service now or salesforce and really when you look at that they are all culture driven and uh, mission driven companies mm. so I would even make a case that uh, the mission-driven and culture-driven companies will, as a whole, outperform the overall market, right? Mm, that's so interesting. So I that's what I look for. That's what I try to incorporate into my investment cases. And in many cases, it's a lot of the, I mean, a large part of the case is just based on the, the amount of, uh, you know the culture how how good the culture in the company is and the for example founder of the ceo or the ceo their track record and really what they accomplished and how they are doing in the company so one of the one of my favorite ceos for example is brian chesky you look at what airbnb accomplished what he did how he basically founded the company amidst the worst time you could amidst the great financial crisis he saved the company during 2020 when they lost like 80% of their business during like six or eight weeks. Wow. They had to pay for uh, to their hosts and guests on both sides. So they spent like 250 million. What did uh, they do? How did they survive? They, they raised guests. money. They were trying to raise money. Just imagine you're raising money and then your investors see that you just paid out 250 million to your guests and hosts. But you have to tell them, like, if you won't do that, we will seriously damage our brand and we won't retain the culture that is so important. Because at the end of the day, Airbnb is all about the uh, trust and culture, right? You go to the stranger's house, right? You have to trust them uh, and you have to trust Airbnb as a platform to, you know, cover you, have your, have your back when something bad occurs. So, like, if you're... Uh, if you are not able to, you know, reach the guest or whatever, Airbnb is having your back. They will offer you another housing elsewhere for the same price or whatever, right? So it's all trust and, you know, culture driven at the end of the day. And so I'm, I think, I mean, Brian Chesky is such a tremendous CEO. If you listen to his interviews, he's clearly mission driven. Um, he had not uh, had not had it easy when he started but he went a long way he tried all his best and i think he's poised to succeed you look at airbnb they managed after the company uh, after the covid uh, you know crisis and lockdowns they yeah they went through a large pains many outlets were predicting that they are going to collapse and go bankrupt they won't make it out alive uh, from the pandemic but, you know, you look at their financials now, they are a money printing machine. They have now like 9.5 or whatever billion in cash right now. They, they last quarter, they made 1.5 billion in revenue and 1.1 billion in free cash flow. So they are literally printing money. <laughs> I, I can't stress this enough. They are crazy. Just show us, right? Many people look at Airbnb as this travel and leisure company. I think it's a tech company. It's even better maybe than some SaaS companies. Really. Wow. If you look that's at the numbers. An, that's, that's an interesting statement, to say the least. And they, their growth is just insane. 
We are already what? like 30% higher than pre-pandemic. Wow. What a recovery. It's just insane. And they restructured out of the pandemic as even more profitable company than before. They really cut the unnecessary costs and they restructured. They again regained this, this uh, you know, culture-driven um, approach that they started losing after all those years as they hyperscaled, right? Because if as you hyperscale, you kind of lose of some of those you know, aspects uh, because you just gain so many new people and it's hard to retain the culture you actually entered with. But they managed to all, do all of that and they just came out of the pandemic as even a strong, stronger player. And even gained an upper hand over, for example, local administrations and, you know, governments, because guess what? Um, before they were pretty much fighting because of the housing and stuff like that. But guess what, ha what happened really? After the pandemic started and people cut their uh, traveling and stuff like that, they started working with Airbnb to, you know, bring the tourists to the areas. So the, it all flipped, right? <laughs> it's wow. really amazing. The, I, I love the story of Airbnb. I'm absolutely a fan. I'm sold. That's amazing. Sam, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Um, unfortunately, I, I wish we could speak for an hour longer. Um, perhaps we'll have to yeah. another time, but all, all, totally <laughs> amazing um, knowledge and conversation. Uh, tell everyone where they can find you on, on Twitter. Um, just search for Samuel Mature and you will just find it. Or, or at Sam Massier, right? Awesome stuff, Sam. It's been a pleasure to speak to you and I'll end the recording here.